kicking off episode 341 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Predatory Lenders. It's from the band The Spoils. They're a surf band based out of Austin, Texas. It's from their album Farewell to Dignity, which was released earlier this year. You can find them at thespoils.bandcamp.com. But don't check them out until you're done listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm excited to have you here because we are talking about a bona fide. Or is it bona fide? Whatever. It's a legitimate classic horror film. We're going to be talking about Son of Frankenstein with special guests. Somebody who's been on the show before. Somebody who's not been on the show enough. Author Dwight Kemper. Now, this recording took place months ago. Probably before Monster Bash. In fact, I now that I think about it, it was before Monster Bash. I've been sitting on it for a while because I had to do a lot of work behind the scenes, post-production-wise, to make it ready for your aural consumption. I think it turned out okay, and I think the conversation's fun. Dwight's a great guy. He loves this movie, and I think that's going to come through loud and clear. Before we get to that, though, we do have some feedback to go over. Why don't we kick things off? With Alan Trump. Alan's been on the show before. We gotta have him on the show again here soon. He writes in, Hi Derek, very much enjoyed the horror of the Blood Monster show with Tom Bigler. My favorite brother Theodore line is, The science of this planet cannot destroy me. <laughs> That's about all he says. He did send a, a recording as well that I'm gonna use on a future episode of MKR down the line when we talk about a particular John Agar film. Alan, Thanks for writing in. Really appreciate it. It's always a joy to hear from you. And it's a thrill to hear from new people too, like Chris W. Hello, Derek. First, let me start off by saying I've been a fan of your show since around the end of July. I don't remember how I ran across it, but when I realized I could download all the episodes, I wasted no time and have been listening to MKR to and from work every day since. I'm at episode number 79 as of this morning. Your now familiar voice has become like an old friend. And I appreciate your humor and sensitivity when discussing certain topics and research when discussing the movies that I love. I, too, have amassed a substantial DVD and Blu-ray collection of horror and sci-fi movies, most ranging from 1950 to 1970. I consider myself a monster kid. I was born in 1966 and caught the tail end of the monster craze that started in the 50s and 60s. As a kid, I read famous monsters of Filmland, built Aurora model kits, and even had a horror host for a while, Sir Cecil Creep out of Nashville, Tennessee. Now I enjoy trying to recapture the feeling of those childhood years, and your show helps me do just that. Those feelings are especially strong during the month of October, so your show has added a new dynamic to the festivities. Thanks, Chris W. from Tennessee. So Sir Cecil Creep, I've heard a lot about because Larry Underwood, who's also based out of the Nashville area, grew up watching Sir Cecil Creep, and I... I have never seen anything by him. I've seen a few YouTube clips, but I, I don't know if there's a lot of material out there on Sir Cecil Creep. I'd like to see it because, I mean, if you speak highly of him and Larry speaks highly of him, you know, he's somebody I need to check out. I want to thank you for listening to the show and thanks for sticking with the show through the growing years as things were starting off at the beginning of the podcast when I was doing two episodes a week and had some audio issues at one point with these awful clicks that would kick in and things would fall out of sync. So thank you for sticking around. I think we've got most of those problems licked. It gets a lot better as you go, I think. So thanks for writing in. I really appreciate it. Now, Chris and Alan both emailed me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And you can do that too, or you can send me a message on Facebook, which is how I heard from Micah Harris. He says, I've been collecting sword and sandal movies since you've run the theme month that we did last month, something I never thought I'd do. And I picked up a history and guide 
on these films. Sinister Cinema has some new offerings in their latest newsletter. Also, glad you're doing Son of Frankenstein this week. That will be a nice Halloween treat. Some of the best dialogue in the original Karloff trilogy and interesting things going on, though not enough monster. And he's rather reduced to Igor's hitman. But in hindsight, the flaws, along with its considerable strengths, make for an intriguing movie in the Universal canon. I agree with you 100%, if not more, and I think Dwight would agree with you as well. In fact, he's going to say as much when we get to the conversation with him. Uh, Listeners, remember Micah. I'm going to bring him up again here at the end of the show. So if I forget, remind me. How does that work? Anyway, thanks for sending me a message, Micah, and we'll talk to you soon. Why don't we get to Dwight Kemper and The Son of Frankenstein? We're going to talk a little bit about his books as well and how Son of Frankenstein influenced his career as an author and a few other things along the way. That's all going to happen right after this. Welcome to an evening with Karloff, the master of menace in five fright-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. <laughs> it's only a gallon bowls, the raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead, Black Sabbath. And there are two more blood-chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die, laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos' creepiest capers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. The supermates couldn't stop it. Amazing. It's incredible. The Fire and Water Network couldn't contain it. We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. The House of Frankenstein returns in 4D. They meet at the castle and hold debauched gatherings. Four blood-curdling episodes. Four classic horror films. Four supernatural adventures with your favorite superheroes. Four chances to lose your mind with sheer terror. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf. With only one desire in my mind. To kill. John Carradine. I am Count Dracula. But I'm known to the outside world as Baron Latos. You see before you a man who lived for centuries. Kept alive by the blood of innocent people. Julia Adams. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. Peter Cushing. This place has been accursed the evil of some who abide here. And at long last, Vincent Price. Nine killed you. Nine shall die and be returned your loss. Coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I can't wait. There isn't time. There isn't time. House House of of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. 4D. My work is nearly finished. Go now. Destroy all I have created. It could be true, you know. There could actually be a man named Barnabas Collins. And he could actually be a real 
This is Sarah Karloff, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Which we'll do after the obligatory uh, beach music thing that you always have going. (laughs) That's right. I'll start it out for you. That was Billy and the Bongos with their latest one, Beach Blanket Monster. See, I was going to kick things off with a, well, hello, but I kind of like that better. So I think I'm going to use it. I don't think he knew I was recording. So Dwight Kemper, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Right now I'm uh, going through the galleys of my third book, which is being republished by Midnight Marquee Press. And uh, I actually have just uh, made a deal to do a murder mystery at a, uh, at a mansion here in Binghamton, at the Phelps Mansion. Well, that's fantastic. Yes, it's going to be my version of uh, Clue which is actually spelled C-L-E-W exclamation point <laughs> by the Perker brothers. <laughs> nice. Well, I saw you post on Facebook yesterday that you got the proofs back for your novel. And I thought, is there a new book? Oh, no, this is a reissue of the third novel. Yes, The Vampire's Two Mysteries. Now, the first two are through Midnight Marquee. That's correct. And then the third one, have we ever talked about why it wasn't through Midnight Marquee? The big problem was that The first two books were published with the name of a certain Hungarian actor, who we will actually be discussing at length in today's show. But for reasons, they wanted to change his name, and I thought that was all right. But but then my then agent came up with this stupid name. And then they wanted to change everybody's name. And I was going, look, no one's going to know what this book is about (laughs) if everybody's name is changed. The funny part about it is that I've taken actual things that people have said in documentaries and I've used it in dialogue in the book. So it's painstakingly researched. I've even got had some people that were there at the funeral telling me behind the scenes stuff. So in order to get it published, I self-published it through Helm Publishing and then Helm Publishing decided to sail away into the distance and do other things. And so I said, hey, guess what? You have an opportunity to publish again. <laughs> so they were happy with the change, and so was uh, Bela Lugosi Jr. Basically, his thought was, well, are you calling him Bela Lugosi? I said, no, we're calling him Mom and Tessa. Then I don't care. <laughs> so, so that was basically it. So now it's going to be published again. I tried to get Bela Jr.'s permission to use the real name for this edition and they tried to contact him, but biggest things didn't happen that day. So edit it in your mind. 
It is what it is, and it's also a uh, a lovely uh, audio book by Circle of Spears Productions, who did an outstanding job of uh, bringing the book to life. So if you're one of those people who would rather listen to the book rather than read it, uh, go to Circle of Spears Productions in the UK, and they will be more than happy to sell you copies of the Vampire's Tomb Mystery. So I don't know if we've talked about the books in a while here on the show, but listeners, the titles are Who Framed Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi in the House of Doom, and The Vampire's Tomb, The Vampire Tombs. Vampire's Tomb. You have a problem with my titles. <laughs> no, no, no. It's Vampire's Tomb Mystery. I've read these books. I've got all three as actual Dead Tree editions, actual books. And I have the Circle of Spears CD of Vampires to Mystery as well. It sounds awesome. Highly, highly recommended. They have the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. You've got to check this stuff out. And when you read these books, like Dwight said, when you read the dialogue, it rings so true to these characters. And part of it is because he did his research. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. So please check these books out. Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, Who Framed Boris Karloff is uh, instrumental in our show today because it takes place on the set of Son of Frankenstein. Check out that segue. It's like Dwight's been on the show before. (laughs) Yes, he has. But you know what you haven't done with me before? What's that? You haven't done your questions thing. We haven't. No. We've never done the Classic Five? No, I've never done the Classic Five, so I'm, I'm anxious to do that. And the answer to all of them would be Boris Karloff, because he's <laughs> the answer to everything. But I'm I'm ready to go. All right. If you want to do the Classic Five, I'm ready. For all right. It. Let me get the deck out. We've got some new questions, some old questions, kind of mixing them all together. So it's all new to you, though. I mean, you've never done it before, so hold on. I feel like I'm having my tarot read. <laughs> <laughs> well, this should be fun. Okay, here we go. Card number one. Favorite John Carradine film? Favorite John Carradine film? Bluebeard. It was uh, kind of a low-budget film, but his performance in that is outstanding. And it was before he, you know, basically did the tail end of the Universal run as Dracula. And I thought that uh, at Bluebeard, he, he was really really good in that it's an outstanding film if you have if folks haven't seen bluebeard by all means look it up it's it's an outstanding john carradine performance all right there you go card number two who else should have played van helsing (laughs) if you want something that would be like completely off the wall peter (laughs) laurie i love it and I'm thinking about that era of Peter Lorre, like Invisible Agent, so that just style. just imagine him uh, going, I think what we have here is a vampire. <laughs> That's perfect. And you do the voice well. Did he ever do a vampire film? No, he never did. In fact, uh, no. He was mostly like a psychopath in one film and murder in another one and uh, stuff. But no, I, I don't think he was ever in a vampire film. Huh. I love it. Now I want to see Peter Lorre as Van Helsing. All right, card number three. Favorite Vincent Price film? I'm going to have to pick two because I saw both of them in my stepmother's movie theater and they both scared the hell out of me and every kid in the audience. (laughs) Okay. And the first one is House on Haunted Hill. Ah. And the second one would have to be Tales of Terror. Oh. In the first one, Price was just set up such a creepy vibe to the whole thing that when Richard Long 
carries that rather fake looking severed head into camera. We kids screamed our heads off, literally, at that head. We screamed. The whole place exploded. And we screamed, too, when uh, in the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, when Vincent Price is starting to melt. And they kept going back to Vincent Price. And first they would show Basil Rathbone. Then they show Vincent Price. And then Basil Rathbone. And then Vincent Price. We were, oh, my God, we, we almost died. <laughs> <laughs> And unfortunately, now I, I can't get that same feeling. It's it's gone. It's something that can only happen in the innocence of childhood. And also having it projected like three miles wide on a, on an original movie screen back before they had all the cineplexes and everything and they cut the screen sizes down. Yeah, so those are the two I would have to say were my, were my favorite Vincent Price performances because they just were so visceral. <laughs> so... I do kind of regret that I know so much about how movies are made now. It kind of takes the magic away. You know, I never will have that opportunity to be completely blown away like a kid watching these movies and just being teared up, just overwhelmed and taken away by these movies. I know, and you see that blind woman who's sort of, I guess she's being pulled on a skateboard or something, but back then, oh my God, we screamed our full heads off. <laughs> <laughs> And that was kind of number three, wasn't it? Because first was John Carradine, and then I said I wanted to see Peter Laurie's. Uh, okay, then, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So that's card number Card number four, Universal's Tarantula, or Bert I. Gorton's Earth versus a Spider, also known as a Spider. I'm going to pick Tarantula for one very ridiculous reason. Is that reason named John Agar? No. Oh. Uh, I know I know you want it to be. Well, yeah. <laughs> but that's. But that's not the reason. No, the reason is because Leo G. Carroll actually tried to pick up my mother on a bus once in New York City. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in fact, every time the man from Uncle came on, my mother would say, "That's Leo G. Carroll. I, when I was a young girl and very pretty, he wanted me. He wanted to take me out, and he flirted with me on the bus in New York City. <laughs> so, so every time I see that, it's the same thing. Like when I see uh, the portrait of Dorian Gray." My mother knew Herd Hatfield. She met him through his mother because she did his mother's hair in New York City and apparently was completely unaware that Herd Hatfield was gay. <laughs> but uh, my mother was friends with Herd Hatfield for a while and she was hit on by Leo G. Carroll. And if you want a technical reason, the special effects in that film are actually superior to Bird Eye Gordon. I love the man. I love. His movies because they're really cheesy, but uh, no, that tarantula is the one. Okay, final question, final card. What is your go-to movie to introduce somebody to classic monster movies? Oh, that's easy. The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah? Yeah, I actually did that one. There was a, a friend of mine who had never seen a Frankenstein movie. So I said, oh, well, then let's, by all means, we'll put on The Bride of Frankenstein. And, and seeing his reaction to it, was kind of interesting because the tonal shifts in it confused him. I mean, this is a very savvy guy. He's, you know, he uh, was interested in many genres, but somehow he just never saw any of the Frankenstein movies. And he thought that the, the uh, shift from comedy to scary and back to comedy, especially the little people in the jars, just totally confused him. <laughs> so... You know, I've embraced all of it. In fact, my mother told me and when the movie was in the movie theaters, 
the kids would get up and get popcorn when the little bottles came out because <laughs> they just didn't want to see the little people. They wanted to see Frankenstein's monster. So what we see is classics today. Back then, they say, oh, not the thing in a bottle. <laughs> so I would write a Frankenstein as the go-to food for me. You know, we were just talking a second ago about how we can't get that visceral thrill out of watching a monster movie because we know so much about them. But then you just said something else very interesting that when you show a movie to somebody who's never seen that classic monster movie before, you get to experience it through their eyes and through their experience. Mm -hmm. You get to live vicariously through them. And I think that's pretty special. Yeah, Una O'Connor really baffled him. Well, (laughs) she baffles me. So he already saw these two two murders, and then the monster comes up on Una O'Connor and goes, you know, (laughs) and then he just sort of stands there and goes, what's wrong with her? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Classic Five. How do you feel? I feel vindicated that I am now part of the Classic Five Club. (laughs) Ooh, there we go. We need a T-shirt that says, like, I survived the Classic Five, something like that. By the way, you had a question the other day one of your shows that I have actually been thinking about. Oh? It's the one where if there was a classic universal film to uh, make into a musical, which one would it be? Okay. And I realized that most of them have already been turned into musicals. Even The Creature from the Black Lagoon, they had one at... No, we, we don't speak of that. Universal boy. Studios, but still at all. Uh, <laughs> but, but I would say that the two that are probably the best to turn into musicals would either be The Mummy or The Wolfman. Both of them have kind of a romantic thing going. And when I say The Mummy, I mean the original first one where Boris Karloff was trying to revive his dead girlfriend. And The Wolfman because it's almost a fairy tale. As they even mention Little Red Riding Hood. So you, there's, it's, it's almost like you could do an Into the Woods version of the Wolfman. <laughs> so, huh. Okay. Yeah. All right, so enough of that. <laughs> 20 years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, being and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I were... know, I know. I too thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You'll see that. They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terrible. 
be afraid all the time. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. You know what, let's go ahead and start talking about the movie Son of Frankenstein. Like you said, it's integral, it's required viewing for one of your books because the story takes place on the set of Son of Frankenstein. Yes. And you've got first-hand experience seeing a lot of these movies at the theater. Was it your mother, your, your stepmother that had the movie theater? Uh, my stepmother had the movie theater. Her name was Marge, and uh, that was my father's second wife, and she owned a movie theater. One time I was taken to the New York premiere of The Jungle Book, and I met the boy who played Mowgli, and I met Sebastian Cabot, but that was totally lost on me because I just thought he was another kid, and I just thought he was a nice man with a beard. So it wasn't until later on when we were back home and we were watching the premiere on the news that they pointed out who those people were because... The kid and I got along great because we were just talking about what toys we had. And, and and I had no idea how these films were made, so I could not connect the fact that these people's voices were on the screen and making the animals in the Mowgli talk. But yeah, she had the movie theater, and she used to show a lot of, well, now they're classic films. Back then, they were first-run films. Uh, Frankenstein meets the space monster. I saw that in the theater. Do your eyes bear witness? Total terror. Frankenstein meets a space monster. All recorders to fast. This is it. For the first time on the screen. America's missile might mobilized against annihilating invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only, to acquire breeding stuff to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth Maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased to confess you are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. Mad Monster Party. She showed that. Mad Monster Party. Mad Monster Party. Starring Boris Karloff and, in order of their appearance, Dracula. Frankenstein. The Werewolf. The Hunchback. The Mummy. Dr. Jekyll. Mr. And, in order of his disappearance, The Invisible Man. Also starring Phyllis Diller as the hostess with the least. <laughs> and then she had the last dregs of a spook show at her movie theater, which showed House on Haunted Hill and Tales of Terror and 
a third one that escapes me right now. But if your audience doesn't know what a spook show is, way back in the halcyon days of the 1930s and 40s, uh, magicians would stage a magic show at midnight along with a horror film. And the magic show would be themed around spooky stuff. So people were being decapitated, and uh, instead of pouring water out of pitchers, it was blood. And then they would have a, a blackout segment where the lights would go out completely. And then they would use what was probably deadly radioactive paint on flags to have ghosts flying around. <laughs> and they tried to do this at my stepmother's movie theater without the deadly radioactive flags but the problem was they really didn't understand the whole point of a blackout so they kept running the film because the the movie that they showed was in place of a magician actually giving you the the, the, the treatment of it because it was a film where a narrator would said welcome you are here for the tales of horror and then they would show clips of Dracula and things like that. And then there would be this uh, swirly thing that would come on the screen. Your blood is now monster blood, now that you have seen this swirly thing. You know. And uh, at one point, I definitely remember saying, uh, I hope you're comfortable where you're sitting, because next to you is someone who's been dead for 500 years. <laughs> well, while this is going on, the ushers have sticks in their hands with you know, like trailing uh, tape and stuff. In the dark, you would think that something is brushing against you, and it could be anything that they wanted to suggest, or your, let, just let your imagination go wild. But you could see the ushers running up and down the aisles with these sticks and brushing them over kids' heads, and I thought that, you know, and I, I think, even at the time, and I, I was only like seven, I was thinking, I don't think this is how it's supposed to work. <laughs> Didn't help either that the monsters came up on the stage, because there's this little stage uh, just under the movie screen. And they were wearing like Frankenstein masks and Dracula masks and things like that, but they had not changed their usher jackets. So they're monsters with red usher jackets. <laughs> so it was very half-hearted, but at least you got to see some good movies. <laughs> walked through a graveyard late at night and seen a coffin open. Have you ever thought what it would be like to see a person's head amputated? Think. Think of things so horrible that the human mind cannot imagine them. See all this and more when you see on stage, in person, that crazy mixed up Dr. Evil and his hairs of the unknown. Unlike anything that you've ever seen or heard of in the past. Hideous creatures from beyond the grave. Leave the stage and grab girls right out of their seats. Girls, do not come alone. Bring your boyfriend to protect you when the lights go out. You may find a live snake or rat under your seat. A real dead body is given away to some lucky person at every performance. Also, in person, the mummy and King Kong, famous Hollywood gorilla, real and alive. Plus, on the screen, two horrific motion pictures. Dr. Evil and his tears of the unknown. Plus, two horrific pictures. I read about these spook shows and and the history of them just fascinate me. I've got a book around here somewhere that uh, talks about those. Is it Ghostmasters? Yeah, yeah, that might be it. It's a nice big format book? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good book with lots of art and graphics. And of course, if you've got a lot of money, you can go on eBay and look at flyers and posters of these things. I don't have that kind of disposable income, but still, really, really cool. Yeah, I actually have an instruction book that was actually printed at the time, and it wasn't that expensive on how to put a spook show on. Oh, wow. 
And in it, it describes how you would make these ghost flags with phosphorescent paint. And, the, and again, it was radioactive phosphorescent paint. That's why it glowed. It's like the radium dials that you used to have on your watch. So they had radium paint. <laughs> so oh, man, it's what you don't know that doesn't kill you. Apparently, <laughs> Yeah. It's something like yeah. that, I guess. Yeah. I read about these and see these posters and that would be an experience. I mean, if it's done right, if they did a real blackout, didn't just dim the lights and have an usher smack kids in the head with a stick. I mean, that, that's a different kind yeah. of scary, but still, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this was the 60s. Nobody cared back then. <laughs> that's, you know, that's in true. the 60s, the idea of parenting was go outside and play and don't come back until like 7 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically it. That was parenting. You were out on your own and you did whatever. <laughs> Anyway, getting back to Son of Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Son of Frankenstein. I don't know if Son of Frankenstein's ever been shown at a spook show proper. Uh, probably not. I mean, it's universal, so the rights. You do see it on Blu-ray now, though. It's it's on DVD, at least. Is it on Blu-ray? It is on Blu-ray. It is now. It, there, there's actually a Blu-ray of all the uh, Frankenstein films, and Son of Frankenstein is on it. Although, I can tell you that the top drawer version of that uh, DVD has never been published because I know from the person who was doing all of the documentaries for like the original Dracula and mummy and Frankenstein and mummy dearest and all of that and Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein. And they had those really wonderful documentaries and everything. Yeah. It's uh, David J. Scal that did those, right? Yes. David J. Scal. I, I, I called him because I needed research information for a murder mystery show that I was doing based on, a Boston production of Dracula. And he was the guy to ask about these people. And we got on that subject. And uh, apparently, uh, he had everything all set up to do this just Son of Frankenstein, not the one where they lumped it in with Ghost of Frankenstein. And for some reason, some executive at Universal said, no, we're spending too much money on it. Just slap two things on a desk. And oh, man. That's it. So... Oh, yeah. So somewhere there is a script that he had all ready to go uh, with a proper documentary on, on Son of Frankenstein. And of all the Universal films, Son of Frankenstein has actually got the most interesting production history of any of them, which we will go into in intermittent detail. It is a unique film in the run in the franchise. Outside of the Spanish version of Dracula, it's got the longest running time. It was even longer. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I can understand why they made the cuts that they did. I, I think I should probably start from the beginning, just so everyone is same page here. All right. All right. Son of Frankenstein is probably the closest thing that you will see to an ad-libbed horror movie. Because they had a script that didn't have Igor in it. The monster talked. And he had dialogue like, you have woman, you have baby, me want friend. You know, and I can imagine Boris Karloff who wasn't that keen on the monster talking anyway, reading this stuff and going, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> so they called Edgar Wallace back, who wrote the original script. Uh, Roland V. Lee would actually get his actors together and they would 
have story sessions coming up with things. Well, what do you think we should do here? And then they would take it to Wallace and Wallace would type it up and then they would have to learn it right there and then, which I'm sure Bela Lugosi was not crazy about because he liked to learn his lines phonetically. But as it turns out, he loved Igor. So I guess, you know, he had an opportunity to say, I'd like him to say this. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was a very, well, why don't we try this today? Uh, kind of a thing, which is why you have production stills that show, oh, things like the monster actually um, killing Benson, the servant. Uh, there's a picture of, of the monster with his hands around Benson's throat and Benson's holding the supper tray. And then there's another still with the monster sitting on the uh, stairs in the secret passage with the body of Benson at the bottom of the stairs and the monsters eating the, the food that's on the supper tray. So there's stuff like that that was cut out of the film. And there's even a still, a couple of stills which suggest that you actually saw the monster and Peter meeting each other for the first time. And, and things like that. And then there were other weird scenes like apparently at one point Basil Rathbone was sneaking out of the castle wearing a cloak and hood and just just all sorts of things that either they just couldn't fit together or they decide I can see as I said I can sort of understand why they decided not to show the monster and Peter meeting for the first time or showing the monster killing Benson because it makes it more mysterious that way so that when the kids telling them I you know Oh, no, it wasn't an imagination. It was a giant. You know, you would actually wonder, well, maybe the kid is having an imaginary situation. And, and, and then, of course, I actually met Donnie Dunnigan, who liked my books, by the way. I did my impression of him, and he loved it. And, <laughs> okay. And I will now do it for you. Oh, he was a big, big man with a hairy coat on. And he walked like this. <laughs> I had him in stitches when I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to talk to Donnie Dunnigan as well a couple of years ago here on the show. It was back in episode uh, 242. Uh, it's in the archives on the website. He's a great guy. Fun to chat with. Would love to chat with him again. Had some great stories. But I had forgotten that as a kid in this movie, he is at, oh, Boy, hello! It's way over the top. Well, he actually explained why he did it that way. Oh? Because before the cameras rolled, the director told him, now, I want you to say hello really, really loud, otherwise the sound man isn't going to be able to pick it up. And that's why he goes, well, hello! <laughs> well, it worked. So much of his dialogue is so... Not out of place, but just feels so apart from everything else in the movie and it's he's a kid i get it I mean, he's lovable i mean well the thing is he everyone keeps complaining about his performance and the one thing i remember as a kid watching son of frankenstein was how natural the kid well, was right because he, he was just like any kid that i would meet on the playground so you know i i, I he's i'm fine with him <laughs> as, oh no don't get me wrong i'm not saying i'm no. not saying you're not i'm saying that there are people who complain so. gotcha okay He's a little different than the rest of the cast, but he's enduring. He's lovable. I would have loved to have seen him in further films. Well, maybe, okay, hey, maybe Donnie Dunnigan is Van Helsing. Oh, there you go. I think it was a vampire. 
A great big one. <laughs> With a big cheekbone. And he walked that. So when he does see and it walks like this, is this the first time we see the over the top with the arms out? Yeah, but he does it the way Karloff does it. He doesn't do it with his arms standing out like he's a sleepwalker. He does it like Karloff does with his arms down. Right. So um, he actually does a, a fairly good uh, Boris Karloff doing that. And I imagine that's because he saw him because there's a still of the monster coming through the secret passageway in his bedroom and knowing where the secret switch is. And uh, so he's probably just imitating what he originally saw. So, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he does. It's, it's a wonderful performance. There, okay, now here's a, if, if you were horrified about the Scowl documentary, you'll be horrified by this. Okay. There was a print of a longer version of Son of Frankenstein. And the dummies at Universal Studios were trying to decide, gee, should we release the longer print or the one that was out in distribution? And when they decided to release the shorter one, meanwhile, the longer one, which was being held in uh, their vaults in Universal Studios lot, the very same vault that suddenly went on fire, so the print was destroyed. (laughs) So uh, there may be other copies of it floating around somewhere because I think I vaguely remember seeing snippets of it on YouTube from Great Britain. So there may still be hope of eventually finding it, but just the very idea, well, duh, do you think we should show the one no one's ever seen before or should we just show the one that everybody knows? I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah. So sometimes I don't have very positive things to say about executives (laughs) you know it kills me that these movies and you know they're monster movies i get it but there's so much more especially these movies from universal they have the history and they just don't get the respect just because they happen to be monster movies Mm. there's so much going on in these films the sets the production design the performance it's music of the filming. It's not just a monster movie. There's a lot here. There's a history of film here. It's unfortunately, they just don't get the same treatment and the same respect that other films from this era get just because they happen to be monster movies. I've also heard there's a UK cut of this film out there somewhere with a few extra minutes on there. I I would love to see it. Even if it's just like a couple seconds, I, I, I don't care if it's even just a terribly scratched up bit of film. I just want to see it. Because I believe when uh, Basil Rathbone is telling Benson about, you know, it was like a doll in those huge hands, and then they cut to Igor listening in that secret passage, the monster suddenly comes into frame. He's there too. (laughs) So um, I do remember seeing that uh, on YouTube. So it's probably still there someplace. Out there in the internet, maybe. Yeah. Now, um, like I say, Son of Frankenstein was a very uh, ad-libbed, slapdashy kind of thing. Because originally, Bela Lugosi was only supposed to be on the set for two days. And Roland V. Lee was so upset by that, it, uh, he, he said, well, those so-and-sos at uh, the head office... I'm going to have him here on the first day of shooting until the last day of shooting. So he expanded his part tremendously. 
So it might actually be that he did some ad-libbing, even though the movie Ed Wood would have you believe otherwise that he was incapable of it. I, he was actually quite a brilliant actor. And uh, he does stuff in that movie that I think actually surprises a couple of people. I mean, when he spits on uh, one of the burgers, uh, he does look actually surprised. <laughs> so, And there are other things in this movie, too, that I find quite interesting. The monster is not as dumb as some of you may think, because he actually stages crime scenes in this movie. <laughs> he pulls down the shade of the apothecary shop before he kills the guy. Now, had it been any of the other Frankenstein monsters, they would, they would have just crashed into the place and killed him and left and not care about any subterfuge. But, but this monster, you know, he's got a criminal brain, but it ain't a stupid criminal brain. Okay, I killed this one guy on his cart, so I think I'm going to put it under the wheels and have the horse move forward. <laughs> so that's that's smart thinking. That's a that's a smart monster. It's not the uh, lumbering brute that. And again, going back to the supposed stiff-legged arms stretched out, that doesn't happen in this movie until you get further on down the line. Then it turns up in the later films. He's a smart thinking monster, and. And who knows? And, and some of that might have been Igor's influence. But still, he's capable of creating these scenarios. He's not just this lumbering guy. He's a thinking machine. He knows what he's doing. It's fascinating. And I know Karloff, this was the end of his turn at the monster. But, you know, he's still giving it his all. It's a terrifying creature, but still kind of sympathetic at the same time. I often wonder if the scene with he and Donnie Dunnigan for the first time, because Donnie mentions that he grabs him by the arm. And, oh, by the way, in the script that Karloff rejected, the monster kidnaps the kid and then puts him on the operating table and is going to use a scalpel to cut the kid's brain out so that the... <laughs> so the so that his father can use it to build a new friend. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, you know how Boris Karloff felt about his dear monster and how in the very first film he was arguing with James Whale about, well, let's not drown the little girl. Can you imagine how he must have felt when he read that page? <laughs> um, that's, uh, Wow. That's, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. that's, uh, something. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say to I that. I you've never read the script. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking, you know, if that scene is available or the screenplay, I would love to just read uh, it. Probably still get it. It might be a little more expensive now, but it's part of the universal classic film series. Oh, okay. It's part of that series. That's, uh, okay. Gregory William Mank presented. And it comes with the, the full script. It's, it's also the same series where you can read Bela Lugosi's dialogue as Frankenstein's monster and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Which is a great, great read. Yeah, make knows his so, stuff. Uh, so there is the full thing. There's really no explanation for how the monster comes back to life. He's just suddenly there. And, uh, and basically he's threatening Wolf von Frankenstein to make him a friend. And this time, he, I guess he's decided, well, I tried a bride and she didn't like me, so make me a male friend. <laughs> and that's when the, he gets the bride idea. 
I'll make a male friend with this child's brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. Why so, not? Um, you know, like father, like son, we're going to build a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is actually is in the script, and I believe he wasn't called Inspector Krogan in that version. I don't have the copy with me, but uh, I believe that he throws a grenade into the sulfur pit. Okay. And now you think there's like a whole army that shoots into the thing and blows it up. It's, it's almost like in Ed, where he said, and I'd like to see an explosion. <laughs> Big cloud in the sky. That's basically how it ended in, Son, in the son of Frankenstein script. So, uh, you can see why basically they said, could you rewrite this? <laughs> Yeah. And, oh, I found out other things. I actually found out something something interesting from Donnie Dunnigan that I wish I knew before I wrote the book. Oh, yeah? From all the plans and the things that were in the Mank book, it appeared that they had sunk the sulfur pit into the floor of whatever studio it was in. And I came to find out from Donnie that no they had built a tower and you had to climb this ladder to get to the top of it. So actually in the, I, they must've done this probably on the fandom stage. Cause that's about the only place that I can think of. It would be big enough for that. Uh, they actually built this tower that has all of the levels and all of the underground stuff and the crypt and everything on different levels. And then they have the sulfur pit and, and the laboratory and the exploded dome is on top of it. So it's actually way up and you had to get there on a ladder. So he told me about that and I wish I had known that that would have been so nice, <laughs> but uh, you only have so much time and there isn't a lot of material on the production of son of Frankenstein. Many things had to be sort of gleaned by watching it. And I watched that film a hundred times. I'm not exaggerating. I had to like stop frames and look carefully. That's kind of how I know that uh, to spare Boris Karloff's back when he's carrying Igor down into the crypt after he's been shot. Uh, he's being flown on a Peter Pan rig. Oh, okay. They're basically using the same technology uh, that they use in The Invisible Man. When The Invisible Man is carrying, like, Anne Gwynn and putting her on the bed or something like that, The Invisible Man could have easily carried Bela Lugosi down into the crypt. Carl just had to have his hands underneath. He didn't have to do anything. He would hint, in later interviews, he hinted at that. Uh, he just didn't go into detail. It, you know, he would just say things like, and I did it, and, it, and, it, and I didn't feel anything. He was, he was as light as a feather. So they did use a lot of interesting technology uh, to do that. And I also found out later when researching Bela Lugosi and the House of Doom that sometimes they would take two adjoining movie studios when I say studios, I mean the, the, the hangar-like places that they film in. Uh, they would open the doors, and they actually built the entire castle to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That, that whole castle, they're not separate sets on separate sound stages, sound stages. They're not separate sets on separate sound stages. They are two huge sound stages with the fire doors open, and they built the whole thing, exterior and interior, in these things. So I'm thinking they, they might have also done the same thing with the castle set in Son of Frankenstein. Because it looks like they're just going from one place to another, to another, to another. And 
it, it almost looks like there are four walls and it's very well could be because that's what they did with Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein, which I had a lot more research material on thanks to the, uh, uh, the writers of Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, they, they shared all of their production notes and things with me because they had everything. No, that's great. They were, they were very nice. Uh, they shared, they shared their, their whole thing. I found out who was late on the set on that uh, day where uh, Bella Lugosi is coming down the staircase. Said, you should be careful. And most of people get killed that way. So I incorporated it into the story <laughs> about why these, people, why these people were late. That was Ron Palumbo and Bob Fermanek. Bob Fermanek, yes. In fact, Bob Fermanek was nice enough to invite me to his house in New Jersey. And he gave me all of his files. And afterward, uh, he oh, wow. arranged for me to see on his private movie screen, a really big movie screen with an actual projector, I saw Forbidden Planet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because he asked me what movie I wanted to see, and he gave me a list, and I said, I, I got to see Forbidden Planet, and it's on the big screen. <laughs> so, well, yeah. And not only that, but he also had a, a reel of uh, excerpts to other movies. And you know how Ray Harryhausen films kind of look a little fake on television? Yeah. When they're projected on a screen, you don't see the outlines of anything. They just look very realistic. It's only when it's reduced and put on a TV screen that it looks kind of like, you know, puppets on a little stage. But when you see it on a big screen, it blows your mind. <laughs> so, wow. Which is probably why King Kong was so effective back then, because you can imagine seeing that on the big screen. You know. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I had very limited information. So mostly I had to look at the stills that I had from the behind-the-scenes production. Then I had to look at the movie itself, and I had to decide where could they have built all of these things. And I know that there was one stage. I, I, I know there's a picture. Uh, stage 7 is behind um, Basil Rathbone and Donnie Donegan, so I assume that was one of the sound stages. And I'm assuming that the Phantom stage was used for the bigger sets. That's basically how I had to piece together some of the details of what's going on. Now, to my credit, uh, Donnie Dunnigan told me that I had pretty much captured everybody, including the behind-the-scenes people. He said that he could almost hear Roland B. Lee saying all the stuff <laughs> that, that uh, I have him say in the, in the book. So, yeah, kudos to me. <laughs> Yet, you know, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. These books ring True. I mean, obviously you weren't there. I wasn't there. But by the time we're done reading it, we feel like we were because there's this sense of reality and, and history and what it was really like. And obviously, that's what the point of this book is, to make you feel like you're really there. The location, the, the sets, the characters, the dialogue. And because these characters are people that we know and love from these films, there's that extra level of pressure that if you don't write these characters just right, they're going to you know, pull you out of it. And I didn't get that sense at all well, in Sarah your books. Well, Sarah Carlock was very helpful, too. Oh, she's a sweetheart. Yeah. I would send her chapters as I was writing it, and I would ask her, if, if at all possible, could you tell me if this is how your dad would react to this or that situation? And she was actually, she'll deny it and say I did it all, but frankly, uh, she was very helpful in a couple of instances, like when Karloff is working in his garden, 
when I originally wrote that, he's upset because he's not only was framed for the murder of a Universal Studios executive, but they're getting away with it because they don't want their star to get into trouble. So they're having Eddie Mannix, Hollywood's greatest fixer, come in to cover everything up. And he's very upset about this because he doesn't want a murderer to get away. And so I have him like stabbing the ground with his hoe and, you know, and just generally being in a bad mood. And Sarah said that he really wouldn't react that way. He would be very quiet and pensive. He, you know, he was not the kind of person who had emotional outbursts. And so I rewrote it and she approved it and said, look, that's just how my dad would do it. <laughs> and in another instance, she told me something that I never read in any of the books. And that was when Sarah Karloff was born, it was through a cesarean section, and her mother was actually in the hospital a few days after because she had gotten an infection from it. So I actually made that part of the plot, that she couldn't leave because she was in the hospital with a, an infection after a cesarean section. So that's the kind of research that goes into these things. I give them as much credit as uh, my researchers go because uh, she would suggest little lines of dialogue and things that this is how her dad would say that. And he really wouldn't do that. He would do this and so forth. And she was also very complimentary because uh, there's one point where Boris is kidnapped by the mob and she wrote back to me and said, I'm hooked. What's going to happen next? So, <laughs> well, that's pretty much the highest compliment right oh, yeah, there. Yeah. It, it, it was a very, it was a very pleasant uh, collaboration because I couldn't, it was one of those things where I had an audience and I couldn't stop because she would be very upset if I didn't get to the next chapter. <laughs> so, so, it, it, so it couldn't have been one of those things where I could just take off for a couple of weeks. I had to just keep going until it was finished. So uh, she was a very good motivator. <laughs> <laughs> we first started talking about having you on the show to talk about this film. You said that you had a hard time with the... The title, figuring out who the sun was, yeah, something along I, those lines? Okay. I was a very stupid child. Oh, no. I took things very literally. For instance, there was a Disney film called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. But I didn't visualize the word war as in W-O-R-E. I thought it was W-A-R. And I thought they were tennis shoes that were somehow computerized and started a war. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. So I kept imagining Tommy Kirk was wearing the computer wore tennis shoes. You know, <laughs> so now in Son of Frankenstein, at the time, as a child, and the movie didn't help, I was under the impression that Frankenstein was the monster, not the creator. It did not help matters any that in the movie, they confirmed that by saying that they call the monster Frankenstein. So as a result... When we came time to see the monster, Boris Karloff looked so different from the other two films that I had seen, because his hair was longer, he was fuller in the face, he was wearing this weird costume. I thought that this was the son of the Frankenstein monster. Don't ask me how he was born with the clamps and the electrodes in his neck and things like that, because that must have hurt my neck. <laughs> But for the bride, but probably why she hisses a lot. Um, 
But <laughs> I thought this was the son of the Frankenstein monster. And I actually thought that <laughs> for quite a long time until I was a teenager. We were in Florida, and of course, Florida is a very senior centric place. So they started showing all of these old movies because that's what people in Florida wanted to see. And that's when I saw almost in constant reruns before they had things like VHS tapes. Because this was 1970, actually 1970, I would record the audio on a cassette recorder, and they would show these things practically every week. So it was only then that I began to realize, oh, that's, he's, okay, so that's still the Frankenstein monster, but he's wearing different clothes and his hair is longer. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, uh, that was kind of a... An interesting mistake. <laughs> you know, they do have that little bit at the beginning, which I find fascinating because when I first started discovering these films, I guess I felt like the naming mix-up was a relatively recent thing, Frankenstein versus Frankenstein's monster. Uh, but no, this was something they actually addressed right there in the film, which probably didn't clear anything up for anybody. Nope, but now... If you want to be really knowledgeable and there's some stinker who's saying the monster was not Frankenstein. Frankenstein was the doctor. First of all, you can say, no, he wasn't a doctor. He was a medical student. He never graduated, so he didn't get his degree. And secondly, in Son of Frankenstein, they say that his name has become so synonymous with horror and monsters that they call the monster Frankenstein. So shut up. <laughs> this is where my so. wife would start pointing at me and scream, nerd rage, nerd rage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a great film. I really enjoyed this movie, and I had forgotten just how big it feels. I mean, it feels like a larger production. I feel like sometimes with the Universal Monster movies, especially like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman onward, they start to feel smaller, and part of it's budgetary and the change of regime at Universal, but this movie has got some incredible sets. Yeah. The home that Wolf and company live in, I mean, it looks so big. And the way they shot it and the lighting and the production design here, you know, I know that Bride of Frankenstein is considered the peak when yeah. it comes to when you want to see a, a quote-unquote weird-looking Frankenstein movie. That's, that's the one, because it's all shadows and lighting and James Whale's just going nuts. But Roland V. Lee did some pretty cool things here with this film. Yes, he did. In fact, uh, it's kind of a disservice to him in uh, Gods and Monsters, the uh, movie that the biography of uh, James Whale, where James Whale says, I just did the first two films. All the others were hacks. Well, Roland V. Lee was not a hack. Uh, he did some very impressive films, including Tower of London, where he brought back Donnie Dunnigan. The sets are very German expressionistic so much so that you miss them horribly when they do Ghost of Frankenstein and it's just basically this regular old castle. <laughs> and there isn't even a laboratory tower anymore. Now it's just one of the parapets and towers of this rather fake-looking model. So, <laughs> you know, gee, couldn't you just get, like, the backdrop or something to pretend that it's still there? Now, what I'm about to mention now is a point of controversy. Right? There are rumors. All right, here we go. And some film historians will flatly decry these rumors that this was originally going to be 
Universal Studios' first Technicolor production. You know, I heard this as well. And the only reason that I believe this is because I was working at uh, Coconuts Video at the time when they were going to first release Son of Frankenstein on VHS tape. Okay. And I read the publicity stuff that was coming up about it and what they were going to have on the VHS tape. And one of the things that they were going to have were the Technicolor tests of the Frankenstein monster makeup. But somebody at Universal Studios stole it. So now people deny that they existed at all. But I saw the memo from the studio that was putting out the VHS tape that they were going to put it on the tape. And I don't mean the Sarah Carlock home movies thing that her mom, Dorothy, uh, took pictures of on the set that are in color. These were supposed to be the actual Technicolor film tests. And as it's supposed to go, Jack Pierce, who was used to doing makeup for black and white film, was having a hard time trying to find a color scheme for Frankenstein's monster. You know, you can probably imagine some of the things that they tried. Garish was one word I had heard from somebody. So maybe they tried to, you know, do him sort of like a winky guard in the Wizard of Oz where he's like green. You know, I mean, incredible, incredible Hulk green, uh, which probably would have worked because for the cameras, he's sort of bluish, greenish coloring anyway. And then and then I I read somewhere else that they, they tried to just go with stone white and that didn't look good. And then they tried variations on it, and it, it, which is the reason why he's wearing that costume. That costume is designed for color. It is at various degrees of brown. If they were not going to make a Technicolor film, why would they change the costume? Karloff hated that costume. He said, look, if, basically he said, if they're going to come up with the idea that after being blown up, the monster's still alive. Can't he still have the same clothes? <laughs> yeah. And that's why he's got this brown jersey on him. Why he's got these various browns on his, on his costume because it was being designed for Technicolor. Now, I'm not sure how good that would have looked because one of the things that makes Son of Frankenstein so appealing are is the black and white cinematography. It's very spooky. I don't know if it would have the exact same effect. I mean, The Wizard of Oz can be one heck of a scary film at times. Ask any kid. But uh, one thing you, you need to know about Technicolor, uh, they the, the, the lab and the woman who ran that uh, lab uh, was a big stickler for how Technicolor was used, and they had to approve the color scheme and make sure that all the colors were bright and vibrant. And I just don't think bright and vibrant would have worked. I know that they did that later with Hammer Horror Films, where they're in Technicolor and Blood Red and all that. But you can imagine having blood and those kinds of colors that the Breen office probably wouldn't have approved the film at all. So like I say, this is a very big bone of contention, but I've seen too much evidence from the studio itself to not believe that they were at least investigating it. If you go to the Monster Kid message board, there is a whole big long thread <laughs> about that. And uh, 
People are even even tried to track down if there were any Technicolor cameras that were available to use to test monster makeup on him. And they said that most of the Technicolor cameras were being used by either uh, the Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind. So I actually have this image, and this, and I'm just going to tell you this right now. It is my own imagination, but I have this weird image of Boris Karloff and Jack Pierce going to MGM and on either the set of The Wizard of Oz or on the set of Gone with the Wind, here's the monster using one of their Technicolor cameras just to take the test shots. <laughs> and that's why there's no evidence of them using it at Universal. It's, it's, it's a fantasy of mine, but as a detective, if there's no evidence of them having a Technicolor camera, then then that would be the easiest thing to do, would be to go to one of the tech, and it probably, maybe the Wizard of Oz would have been a better thing because there was already a castle set and you could stomp around in it. So, uh, yeah, right. If I were going to be a Universal Studios executive and I needed to do Technicolor tests and there wasn't a single Technicolor camera available to me, I would offer to pay for the film and the use of the thing and whatever their production day they were going to lose just so that I could have my super production test shots of Boris Karloff. So that's my deduction of how possibly they could have done Technicolor tests with no Technicolor cameras. Available. Hey, sounds good to me. I'll believe that now too. I want yeah. to believe. Yeah. Yeah. There's, that was also a very visited set. Gosh, there's a lovely picture of the monster menacing Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen. <laughs> All the pictures that I've seen of the production of this film, it seems like, I don't know if openness is really the word I want to use here, but it seems like everyone was having a great time. Everyone was on board and having a good time making the movie. People are coming and going and visiting. There are pictures of kids on set, young adults visiting and hanging out. And didn't somebody have a birthday during the production? Uh, Boris Karloff. Did. Oh, that's right. And then Sarah Karloff was also born during the production of the film. Born that morning of Boris Karloff's birthday. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> they shared the same birthday. They the same birthday. Uh, that's why I opened the, uh, in fact, it, it was the photograph of the monster cutting his birthday cake that inspired me to write Who Framed Boris Karloff. Oh, really? Because I've got a picture of him and there's Rowan V. Lee and there's Bill Lugosi and there's uh, Basil Rathbone and here's the monster in his full costume cutting his birthday cake. And apparently he was also presented, because he had a baby that morning, he was also presented with a pair of bronze monster shoes, which Sarah Karloff still has. Okay, that's adorable. I was looking at that picture and I was thinking, you know, everything looks all cheery and nice and everything, but somewhere on that set of body is going to be. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm the kind of guy who goes through an antique store and will pick up something and say, this would make a good murder weapon. <laughs> so. Just, just imagine the markings it could leave in someone's skull. <laughs> yes, in fact, I have a uh, a cast iron pumpkin, which is which is supposed to be like a candle holder, okay. and I did it for a mm -hmm. for a murder mystery called "You're a Killer, Charlie Brown," where <laughs> where somebody is bonked <laughs> on the head while wearing a uh, a ghost uh, sheet with too many holes cut in it. <laughs> So seeing this photograph, which I have framed it in my kitchen next to my refrigerator, uh, that inspired me tremendously to, and it, it was also very helpful. I knew what year the, the murder mystery would take place. I knew who the 
suspects would be. I know who the victim would be. I knew what movie they would be making. It just basically, I just had to figure out how to kill the guy and <laughs> frame Boris for it. <laughs> so it was just one of those things where you just had to think clearly and deviously and come so, up. So, uh, listeners, don't take that clip. Don't pull that out where Dwight's saying he can just kill the guy. Don't pull that out and just use that against me. I'm just saying. Don't use it out of context. Just saying. Although I say that. Well, unless you're promoting one of Dwight's murder mysteries, then you're fine. Well, the funny part about it is when anyone really ticks me off, I write a murder mystery and kill them in it. So it's it's very well. There you go. It's very therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> so but just remember, stay on my good side, or you wind up a corpse in my next production. <laughs> and another thing, you don't want to take out of context and use against Dwight down the line. Just saying. <laughs> It'll be a wonderful ringtone, wouldn't it? Oh, there you go. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking that I should pull out the audio of Igor playing the horn and use that as a ringtone. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) Right now, my ringtone is currently the stinger from Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Which amuses my wife to no end. Anytime somebody calls, I get that stinger. If you don't play, if you don't answer it, I would then go. It should. But now I do want that horn playing. I think that'd be a lot of fun. We should do that. You know, there's just so much in this movie to enjoy. Now, the interesting thing about this, let's just talking about the plot. Okay. Okay. Talking about the plot, uh, Wolf von Frankenstein is coming back to his hometown, strangely enough, named Frankenstein, which is odd because that's not what it was originally named, but somehow the townspeople hated Dr. Frankenstein so much, they decided, hey, let's just name the town after him. <laughs> yeah, let's name the town after him and then leave it that why? way. I just, yeah. uh, why? Yeah. Uh, whatever. So anyway, the, the village of Frankenstein is not happy that he's coming back. And the uh, Burgermeisters are all arguing about it and, and basically bringing us up to date with what happened in the movie. And in a way, the movie is sort of a reboot and not so much a sequel because no mention is made of Dr. Pretorius, although in the script, Dr. Pretorius and the homunculi and the skeleton of the bride are actually mentioned in the uh, found in the blown up laboratory man i need to get that book that book sounds amazing when wolf is going through it for the first time like he does in the movie he actually comes across the homunculi and the blown up bodies of uh pretorius and bride and all of that anyway wolf is coming here and he's coming with his wife and and his little son who by the way stares at the camera as it pans away from him and up to the compartment with uh, Basil Rathbone. Almost <laughs> every time. Yeah. <laughs> that kid is very aware of the camera. He has not yet learned the, the value of, uh, of not looking at the camera yet. Uh, Josephine Hutchinson, great, yet fearful. Now, a little trivia. If you if you look at Bela Lugosi's later serial Oh, the one with the big robot in it. Phantom Creeps. Uh, the titles to each episode of the Phantom Creeps is actually the same gloomy countryside that is projected it past the window of the train. <laughs> in oh, of, is it really? In Son of Frankenstein. It is this, it's the exact same film clip. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
So next time you look at that and then go look at the Phantom Creeps, you're going to see some very familiar stuff going by. Anyway, Wolf is uh, wants to get his inheritance. His father has died, and apparently he's going to get two boxes. Lord knows what's in them. And it's almost the setup which was later parodied in uh, Young Frankenstein. And this is the clever way that they mentioned that the monster is called Frankenstein. Because here, here he is, he's saying how, that he was right. It was just the blunder of, a, of an assistant who gave him the brain of a criminal instead of a normal one. Why, nine out of ten people call that misshapen creature my father's experiments. And then you hear the uh, conductor going, Frankenstein, Frankenstein. <laughs> which is a really cool bet. I like that a lot. Which I guess is why they named it Tom Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, you know. <laughs> just so they could do that. Once he's at the village, of course, naturally... The villagers who hate him all decide to meet him at the train station, which is raining, of course, and miserable weather, and everybody's got their funerary black umbrellas open, and he gets his boxes, and then he tries to say, My wife and son, we all want to be your friends, but I heard my father was a good man, and that's when they all go, and they just Well, this. yeah. <laughs> It would have been nice. Well, I made a good first impression, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to his estate. And, of course, we've already met Igor because there's uh, uh, kids that are going to throw rocks at the tower window. And there's Igor. And then they just run off. Well, the goes, he is known for saying that Igor is his favorite character. And I have to say he's my favorite character, too. He's even better than Dracula. As Bela Lugosi said, he is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> You could tell he was really enjoying himself. He was having a ball with his character. Well, he put so much into that character. Igor is amazing, especially in this one. It's a little watered down in the next one, but this Igor, over the top, awesome. A little side note, when we finally meet the monster for the first time down in the crypt, I, being having a medical background, have to ask myself, the monster is on this slab, he's in full clothing, and he's in a coma. He isn't being fed. He doesn't have a catheter. <laughs> it's like, we're just going to ignore all the biological reasons why this does not work. <laughs> so, but there is a, there, there's an interesting blooper that re was reported to have happened during this shot. Because Igor has the line, he is my friend. He does things for me. And every time he said that line, Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone would break up. And I think at one point, he, uh, Boris said, oh, I guess the truth is out now, Bela. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Which I believe is why, instead of a wide shot, he finally says that line in a close-up, because the director was getting sick of everyone breaking up every time he said he does things. <laughs> so... Back then, when you said that somebody does things for you, it, it meant that they turned you on. <laughs> so, so, well, um, um. <laughs> yeah. so anyway, so anyway, Wolf gets the brilliant idea that I can bring this monster back to life and somehow I can vindicate my father because nothing ever went wrong when he was alive the first time. <laughs> so, right. We have a very interesting series of scenes where Wolf is taking the monster's pulse and blood pressure 
And he says uh, extreme osteodermia in the frontal region, which uh, is the first time anybody gave a medical name for that funny overhanging forehead of his. I think his systolic was over 300 and a diastolic of 220. So the monster had high blood pressure and the cells in his bloodstream seemed to be battling each other. And uh, but one thing that he said that I, a lot of people take umbrage with, with this one line that Wolf says, that he says uh, that he has a hyperpituitary and that accounts for his tremendous size. And everybody says, well, it's got a tremendous size because that's the way the monster Frankenstein built the monster. So not entirely. Yeah, not entirely true. When Frankenstein first built the monster, he was this rail thin corpse. Now he's like this bulked up bodybuilder. Well, Boris Karloff can and, afford but, to eat now. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. I mean, that's the actual. Well, right. But, uh, but I'm thinking that Wolf is trying to say that you know, he has basically acromegaly. So that's why his features are changed and why he's bulkier and things like that. He's basically like uh, Rondo Hatton in the way. Interesting. They were trying to, okay. They were trying to suggest. Because if you have a hypervituitary and you're already an adult, uh, you will, your face will distort and your body will distort. And that's usually what kills you is that the uh, the organs begin to get too big to work. Right, properly. right. Huh. So I think that's what they were hinting at. And that basically the monster is being kept together because of his structure. Now, an interesting thing to call back, I think it's a callback to the Bride of Frankenstein, is that he has two bullets in his heart. And if you actually count the number of bullets that the monster gets shot at as he's breaking free of those chains in the Bride of Frankenstein, and before he tears that door open, there are two shots. <laughs> And I'm thinking those are the two bullets in his heart. <laughs> so they did their research. And then he thinks that he's failed because he tries to use, And this is actually the first time we see the clamps being applied to the electrodes. Uh, before that, he's always on a table and there's always the, the thing over it. And he's always carried up to his ceiling and, you know, you don't actually see what's going on. Now we actually have the clamps on his electrodes. For the first time. And then for every subsequent Frankenstein movie after that, they will use the electrodes and the clamps. And it appears that the monster wakes up for a minute, but then he goes right back into a coma. And then that's when we, you know, well, hello, monster, visit, you know, giant visit me in my bedroom. <laughs> the, the only thing that kind of gets me about the, and he walks like this, is that at no time did Wolf see the monster walk. So he doesn't know what he walks like, but he reacts like he's the kid is doing a damn good impre impression of the monster and he knows how the monster walks. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. The whole point is that he's not. Well, I mean, he's never seen him. He gets really excited later. He starts talking with the, the butler, uh, whatever what his name was, uh, the butler. Benson. Yeah, Benson. Benson. He's walking. He's walking. But he's so excited, even though he's never seen him walk before. Right. So, so that always I didn't know if it was like a continuity error or there was another scene or something but uh but in the shorthand version of telling a story you're going to have things like that because they need to convey information they need to get them out of the room <laughs> so yeah true true so i kind of just take that as well we need him uh, to react like this even though it really it makes no sense because up until then he's just been a body strapped to a table 
And then we come to the highlight of Son of Frankenstein, where Wolf meets the monster for the first time, where he puts his hand on his shoulder. And this is also this, the scene that they shot where they surprised Boris Karloff with his cake. Because in the original shot, remember that cloak that I told you that Basil Rathbone was wearing in scenes that there's only stills to and we never see him wear it? Well, he's wearing that cloak to hide what's on the table, which is supposed to be lab equipment, but it was actually his cake and presents and things like that. So when Boris puts his hand on his shoulder, that's when everybody shouts surprise and then shows him the cake and everything. And the whole thing is chronicled in photographs in great detail about everything that happened that day. So yeah, seeing the thing after they had their cake and ate it too, this is the scene where the monster is comparing his reflection to Wolf's reflection. And it's really interesting in that the monster has seen his reflection before, but I don't think he's ever put two and two together that that is him. In Bride of Frankenstein, he sees his reflection in the water and he attacks it and is then distracted by the shepherdess who screams and then falls into the water. So I don't think he quite got that that was him. It's in this film where he sort of nudges the rope with his elbow and then touches his chest and then his face and then suddenly he realizes, Oh my God, now I'm beginning to understand why everybody hates me so much. I'm hideous. <laughs> and he, now, another thing that they try and do in this film is they try to convince us that Wolf is very much like his father, even though he doesn't look anything like Colin Clive, to the point where you could say that the monster first thinks that's his creator and then realizes that it's not. But they don't look anything alike. They're not the same height. They have the, not the same bone structure. But on the other hand, at least he looks more like Colin Clive than um, the fellow who plays his brother in The Ghost of Frankenstein, uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick, who doesn't look anything like Colin Clive, and yet gets plays both the son of Frankenstein and the ghost of Frankenstein, hence that weird title. Um, so you can kind of sort of get away with it. And I understand that there's a collector who actually owns the painting that's hanging over the fireplace that's supposed to be uh, Colin Clive in the, in the portrait. Yeah, so it still exists. A lot of people have complained that the monster isn't in this movie all that much. I, I think if you actually timed it, he probably has the same screen time that he does in most of these movies. Frankenstein was a little over an hour. Bride of Frankenstein was originally two hours, but then they cut it down to 90 minutes, and most of the stuff they cut, he wasn't in anyway. And he's not in it for like, you see him from the windmill uh, scene, and then you don't see him again for like a half an hour. I think if you actually time it all, he's got the same amount of screen time in this movie, because it's longer. But his scenes have impact and import. And I can see the, like I said before, I think they cut the stuff out that they cut out because they wanted you to wonder what happened to Benson. If you saw him getting killed, then you would know what happened to him. And then there would be no mystery about where's Benson. So I think Roland V. Lee made the right decisions about this film. Still, it would be nice if we could actually find the footage that may have been on that reel that got destroyed in a fire because people are stupid. And it's also significant in... I actually like to pretend that 
this is the end of that monster that he was just that he was destroyed at the end of this film and he was destroyed in the sulfur pit because they try to say that it's like over 8,000 degrees and that even a stoutest Roman wouldn't survive and that without being parboiled to the bone. So even though strangely enough, somehow he survives that intact and without having to breathe. Oh, there's a line in the ghost of Frankenstein script, which is so clunky. Uh, where Igor is taking him out and said, they didn't know that when sulfur cools, it expands instead of contracts. It's like, really? And how would you know that? <laughs> and what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> right. <laughs> I understand that I think they approached Boris Karloff about being in the Ghost of Frankenstein. And I can only imagine his reaction oh, they're going to take the monster's brain out and they're going to put Igor's brain in instead. <laughs> I think not. <laughs> yeah. So after that, the, the movie kind of, the series kind of went, mm, but you know, they were still enjoyable, but they certainly weren't to the grand scale. I think, I think this was a nice grand finale for the Boris Karloff Frankenstein films, because anything after that, as he, as he thought he would have just been a, a prop and he could see the handwriting on the wall. And, you know, and I think he might've even had some sort of a, I have no way of proving this, but I'm just going from the way he reacts. I think he might have even had some sort of a superstition about the monster and treating him properly. Because before Frankenstein's monster, he was really not going anywhere in his career. After Frankenstein's monster, he was a success. And I think he didn't want to jinx that, which is why he was so protective of what he did with it afterwards. Like he would, he did a charity baseball game as Frankenstein's monster with Buster Keaton and so forth. There's, there's some pictures of that where he appears in a, in a baseball stadium and it's for charity. And at one point the monster puts on Boris Carlos glasses so he can see the ball. <laughs> it's very funny. It's, it's a send up and the makeup was done by uh, Jack Pierce. But I think he did that because it was for a good cause. Uh, there's also photographic evidence and, and written evidence that he was supposed to be Frankenstein's monster in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty with Danny Kay. Aren't there stills? Isn't there a picture of that somewhere? Yeah, there are stills, but not of what happened on the set. Oh, okay, okay. There are stills of him in makeup. He's smoking a cigarette. His wife, his, his new wife is there. The director is there and uh, Jack Pierce is there. But there's no uh, on-set pictures. But they must have shot something because if you watch The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, he goes out one window and when he comes in the other window, he's wearing different clothes. So obviously that something happened between one scene and the other scene. And that's why he's sort of scared of Boris Karloff even before he opens his mouth. So... Um, I don't know if it was a whole fantasy sequence where Danny Kay was supposed to be Frankenstein and he makes the monster or if he turns around and sees Boris Karloff and then there's sort of a dissolve where the, he's Boris Karloff one minute and Frankenstein's monster the next and then back to Boris Karloff. I don't know what the thing was supposed to be. I'm still trying to track down a script so that I could see what they intended to do. But they did, there's a letter that Universal authorizes them to use the makeup, and they got Jack Pierce there to do it. And the, the, another interesting thing, 
you see what the monster would look like at Boris Karloff at that age. He looks very tired, and I don't blame him because that makeup is not easy to get on, nor take off. And it's probably one of the reasons why when they were approaching him to do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, that he suggested that they get Glenn Strange. He'll be very good. I will promote the thing for you, but I don't want to see the picture. So, And then later on, he did two films with Abbott and Costello. So it's not like he turned his nose up at Abbott and Costello. I just think that he was afraid that the monster was going to be made fun of in some way. And he might have also thought it might be too physically taxing for him. I wouldn't imagine he'd want to put the makeup back on again at this point. I mean, it's not really him anyway. It's just an over-the-head mask, isn't it? Somebody else is wearing it? Yes, it's it's a stuntman. I forget which. I think it's Eddie Parker. I'm not sure. I know it's one of the stuntmen that used to do a lot of stuff at uh, at Universal. So as he was getting older, I mean, he was getting emphysema. He was getting all sorts of, you know, he also had some leg issues and things like that. But he was always also a trooper. But I also think that he just, he always said that the monster was his best friend. And I gotta say, he's my best friend too. I find him very comforting. I don't exactly know why. And you will think this is strange, and it probably is, but when I have trouble sleeping at night, <laughs> I imagine that uh, Dr. Frankenstein is removing my brain from my skull and placing it in Frankenstein's monster, and Suddenly, I'm Frankenstein's monster, and that just puts me right to sleep. I'm going to make sure there's links in the show notes to everything that Dwight and I talked about and everything Dwight Kemper. I have a tinyurl.com link that I've created that you can use to find Dwight's books on Amazon. Just head over to tinyurl.com slash Dwight on Amazon, all one word, no spaces or anything like that. So head over there and you can check out all of Dwight's books there. He's also got a website at murdermysterytheater.com. This is where he does his murder mysteries. You can check him out there. And then, of course, you can pick up the last book that he did, the one that's getting re-released by Midnight Marquee as an audio production from circleofspears.com. This is Vincent Price. I've been involved in many blood-chilling films like The House of Wax and The Fly, but never have I played in a more terrifying shocker than my new picture, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a story guaranteed to make you shudder with fright. See The House on Haunted Hill, if you dare. drop of blood feels the freezing paralysis of fear, almost stopping your heart, as Edgar Allan Poe unfolds his tales of terror. You will meet the master of the mansion, who loved and protected his wife with the strength of a supernatural love, even beyond life itself. I am in command here. You will do as I say. I shall take what I desire. Your body and your soul, if I demand it. Then you'll enjoy the Black Cat's sardonically humorous tale. It all started at the Vintners' convention, where the lover of wine met the professional wine taster and introduced him to his wife, a darling who delighted in Dalians.
What kind of a man are you anyway? Make love to my wife and doesn't even talk to me. You're insane. That may be, but very clever. Help! 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 In this monstrous mausoleum of the living, you will witness fury far worse than a woman scorned. The fury of a dead woman's jealousy. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. What's that noise? Spiders. I told them to bring me one, and I believe it. I can't say I blame you, Sheriff. But Flynn's still missing. Deep into caverns whose very air is putrefied by the stench of death. (laughs) They search ceaselessly for a missing man, or possibly a giant spider no one really believes exists. Except the high school teacher who knows his science and his students. There will be more giant spiders coming into the world. They may even be hatching from their eggs in some remote spot right now. Do you realize how easy it would be for them to overcome us humans? A horrifying spectacle. Its existence shocks and fascinates the world of science. Its gigantic claws capable of crushing a man. Or tearing a woman apart as if she were a fly. But nothing sends the cats like the presence of -of out-of-this-world horror. A heart-stopping experience that defies man's imagination. That shrinks every woman's skin with the tension of terrifying withdrawal as if a thousand spiders were taking possession of her body. You'll never believe it until you see it. You'll never forget the touch. Um. You 
got some big things happening here on Monster Kid Radio within the next couple of weeks. I want to review that with you guys and gals real quick before we sign off. First of all, coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio, your friend, my friend, Mickey Mouse's friend, Scott Morris, is going to be back on the show. And we're going to talk about a film that he had never seen prior to watching it for our conversation, which was kind of sort of the formula that we had when we launched the 1951 Down Place podcast, when we were doing the Hammer Film podcast. Scott didn't have a lot of experience with these movies, so it was nice to kind of revisit that vibe when we talk about It, the terror from beyond space. How could that thing have gotten aboard? Why? Just to kill us? What is the usual reason an intelligent creature kills? It's hungry. What made you so certain it's intelligent, Colonel, not just an animal? It opened the door to see compartment. In the silent void of outer space, puny man matches his cunning against a monster from Mars running rampant, howling for all the flesh and blood on Earth. So that's happening next week. After that, I'm looking to have Micah Harris on the show. Micah and I actually recorded an episode a few months ago, and we're going to talk about a film that, well, he brought it to the table, and I'm glad he did because I found it quite enjoyable, despite the rather salacious title. The movie is 1958's The Woman Eater. Along the jungles of the Amazon, the evil forces of witchcraft and black magic still rule the native heart bringing sudden terror to the people who wander its primeval forests. With this, our people make live the dead. Master, this is good. Starring George Kaloris as Dr. Moran, a man obsessed with the power of evil. In his ruthless hands lies the secret that could solve the mystery of life and death. She'll become part of the plant. And from it, I'll get the serum to bring the dead back to life. Ever since you came back from that horrible journey five years ago, you've been different. Yes, you're right, Margaret. I've changed. I believe you're doing something wicked. There's that iron door that I mustn't go through. I dream of it. What does it lead to? The feeling of evil is all around them. A forbidding past becoming part of the frightening present. Those who enter this house of fear Stay to face a jungle of terror. Why do you lock me in here? I'm frightened. Way up in the Amazon jungle, there are people who put their hands into the mouth of death and snatch its victims back. I learned their secret. I told you. The world will ring with my name. The man who can bring back the dead. You're mad! And then what's happening after that? Well, stay tuned to MonsterKidRadio.net as well as the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page because here within about a week, actually probably less than that, I'll be posting an image showing what episodes I have scheduled this month. I've been getting some positive feedback from people when I post the schedule for the month ahead of time. So I'm going to try to keep doing that just to keep you guys and gals up to date about what's coming up next on Monster Kid Radio. And if you haven't seen a movie that we're talking about in the future, well, this will give you a chance to check it out beforehand. 
So that's what's happening here on the podcast, happening live and in person here in the Portland, Oregon area on October 28th. It is the third annual Scarathon at the Joy Cinema in Tigard, Oregon. You can find out about them over at thejoycinema.com. Now, Scarathon, it's five movies. It's one price to get in and you can save for one or save for all five. This is the lineup this year at 2 p.m. House of Wax in 3D. 4 p.m. King Kong Escapes. 6 p.m. House of Frankenstein. 7.30. Creepshow. And at 10 p.m., The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've been asked back to introduce these movies. I'm going to be doing the first half and a half. I'll be doing the first three films, introducing the movies, doing some trivia. There will be some prizes if you're in this Tigered area. I sure would love to see you there. All day passes to get into the Scarathon. $20. Five movies, 20 bucks. That's four apiece. I mean, that's, that's a heck of a deal. And their concessions... They're not that expensive. So come on out to the joy, buy some popcorn, some pizza, some beer, pop, or whatever, and enjoy these movies with me and the rest of the monster kids that'll be there. Like I said, I'm doing the first three films, so make sure you got your trivia hats on because I've got some prizes that I'd love to give out. Now I can hear you asking yourself, Derek, why aren't you sticking around for Creepshow and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? These are great films. Creepshow in particular is a wonderful anthology horror film. Some would say it's probably the best anthology horror film. And it's George Romero. You know, I got to give it up to Uncle George. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, we're honoring Toby Hooper. Why are you not going to be there, Derek? Well, it's not my fault, man. The Northwest Film Center in Portland is showing another classic horror movie, and I, and I got to run over to that. Cat People is happening Saturday night at 9.30 at the Northwest Film Center. I'm going to be going to that as well. I don't have the time to put together graphics or an event page on Facebook to indicate that this is going to be a Monster Kid Radio crash, but you better believe I'm bringing my recorder with me. If nothing else, I'll record after the movie, letting you guys and gals know what I thought of it. Now, I've seen Cat People before. I'm looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. Last year, if you remember, Chris McMillan and I went to see Theater of Blood, the Vincent Price film at the Northwest Film Center, the Sunday after Scarathon. And it's been about a year now, so I think I can admit that I kind of sort of maybe dosed off for a few minutes in Theater of Blood. But after hosting five movies at the Scarathon, I mean, I was wiped out. This time, because I'm only seeing three movies at the Scarathon and then it's all the same day, I should be okay. So come out and maybe help keep me awake while we watch Cat People at 9.30 at the Northwest Film Center. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the Cat People. Women whose kiss means death. Whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Belle. Just a minute ago, it was open. Clark. Leave us, Irena. And of course, the big day. It's October. It's Halloween. October 31st. I've been asked if there's going to be a special podcast that day or anything like that. No, I'm not going to be putting out a special Halloween podcast. I'm going to be a blast to do so, but 
just don't have the time or or resources to make that happen. That said, I will be active on Facebook Live that day, just like I was last year, because I took the day off from work. I plan on staying home all day watching nothing but classic monster movies and maybe a classic TV show or two, depending on what I can fit in and, and that sort of thing. I do need to hop between bedroom and living room while I'm watching these things to make sure the cats get equal attention because they're still kind of separated, but that's not why you're here to <laughs> hear about my cats on Monster Kid Radio, but bottom line, is I, you know, the cats are separated. One of them seems Wednesday, and you're going to get to meet her uh, when I do Facebook Live because, well, she's a ham and she's adorable. And then, of course, Smoke and Sam will be joining me when I watch classic movies on the Roku. It's going to be a fun time. I'm looking forward to Halloween. I'm probably going to stay up Monday night, Halloween Eve, watching some stuff as well. And if nothing else, I'm sure my wife and I will watch Stranger Things Season 2 at some point. I don't know if we'll binge through the whole thing, but it will be a blast. And speaking of Stranger Things 2, Jeff Polier asked me when I went to go see Nosferatu last Friday, which, by the way, was awesome, if we're ever going to get another Married with Monsters, especially with Stranger Things 2 coming. I haven't discussed it with my wife yet, but I would love to pull out the microphone. If nothing else, maybe a couple of minutes after every episode, we can just chat for a second to let people know what our thoughts are. As it is a Netflix show, it's coming out all at once. So, you know, we'll kind of divvy it out maybe between episodes. She and I will take pee breaks, recording breaks, food breaks, and then put in the next episode and then so on and so forth through the entire season. My wife is raising her hand. Yes, Brenda, do you have a question for the class? My wife has just informed me that we owe an episode of Married with Monsters about season one. So what if we do this? This is the best podcasting ever when you get to hear the brainstorming that happens behind the monster curtain here at Monster Kid Radio. Uh, The Monster Kid Radio Caverns, I think is what I'm calling it this week. What if we do this? Before we start recording about Stranger Things episode or season two, excuse me, We'll maybe do a little five to ten little thing about Stranger Things 1 and talk a little bit about what we're hoping to see in Stranger Things 2. My wife is shaking her head or nodding. She's nodding. Okay, so she's on board. That's going to happen. And it's recorded as an MP3 file, so you can count on it. It's going to happen. She's committed. Anyway, on that note, I'd love to hear what you guys and gals are doing for Halloween. You know, it's it's the most wonderful time of the year. And as I keep saying on Facebook, somebody really needs to write some Halloween lyrics to that song so that we can sing that all October long since you know, everybody's going to be singing it all December long or actually probably November long here soon. I would love to hear a Halloween version of that. It is the most wonderful time of year for us Monster Kids. So I'd love to hear what you guys and gals are doing. Drop me an email. Again, the email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call call in and leave us a voicemail. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. I've mentioned Facebook quite a bit. We are on Facebook. We have a Facebook presence. I do have a Twitter account. Don't do much there, but whenever there's a new episode, it does get announced there as well. Of course, as I said earlier, we have links to everything that we've talked about with Dwight here on the show and everything that we talk about here on the show in general is available at our website at monsterkidradio.net, including links to our Patreon campaign, links to the bands that appear here on the show. If you want to be a guest on Monster Kid Radio, there's a survey for you to fill out. Everything you need to know about the show, it's right there. And of course, like I said, that's where I'm going to be making the announcement about what's coming up in November and then in December as well. That's coming too. 
I think that's about it. I'm about talked out. So let's go ahead and wrap up the show by reminding you, hey, you know what? There is something else I wanted to talk about real quick. I was just looking at the website and I'm looking at this picture of me and Barbara Steele from the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon, where con, I moderated con, the Q&A. Con. I'm running a caption contest right now through November 15th. How does it work? Email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com with what you think would be a good caption for this photo. I don't remember what words were coming out of my mouth at the time this photo was taken, but it's probably one of my favorite photos ever (laughs) of me doing something with a horror celebrity type. This is awesome. So I would love to hear what you guys and gals think the caption should be. After November 15th, I'm going to set up a Google document, a survey, and popular vote. You're going to pick the best caption. And the winner of that will get a Monster Kid Radio prize package worth at least one monster movie. Yeah. And we'll throw some other things in there too. Anyway, check out the photo over at the website. Send me your caption contest entry by November 15th. Now that's the end of the show. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Predatory Lenders. That belongs to the band The Spoils, the surf band out of Austin, Texas. It's from their album Farewell to Dignity. You can find them at thespoils.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. You can pick up the entire album whatever price you want. It's name your price. So go check it out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Happy Halloween and ciao. <laughs>